WTBN Pinellas Park, W262CP Bayonet Point. Brought to you by Moss Nissan. Locations in portions of this hour have been pre-recorded for broadcast at this time. Odyssey. The following program was pre-recorded for broadcast at this time. Up next is Verse by Verse, sponsored by Verse by Verse Ministries. Now, as we consider these words, the first and really the most pressing issue that we need to address is what exactly did Jesus mean by the words, the expression, the phrase, the gates of Hades? And then once we understand that, we need to see in what way the gates of Hades tries to overpower Christ's church, but fails. And after coming to an understanding of the full meaning of our Lord's words, then we need to see some important implications and applications that emerge from this important truth that he was teaching. The words we're considering today on Verse by Verse are those Jesus spoke to Peter and the other disciples in Matthew 16 when he said, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Welcome to Verse by Verse, a Bible class of the air led by Pastor Steve Kreloff of Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. For the past couple weeks or so, we've been taking a close look at the nature of the church. Our main text has been Matthew chapter 16, but we have studied many other passages which shed light on the statement Matthew recorded concerning Jesus and the church he would soon be building. Today, we'll be heading back to Matthew to look at something Jesus said about the church and what he termed the gates of Hades. Pastor Steve will begin by quickly reviewing some of the subjects we've already covered, and then we'll move on to the verse I just quoted. It's one that I remember being very puzzled about when I first thought about it as a new believer. What did Jesus mean by the gates of Hades not prevailing against the church? If he meant that they would attack the church unsuccessfully, that's a pretty strange thing for gates to do. Satan attacks the church and us as individual members of the church. But gates don't normally attack people. So what did Jesus mean here? If you're following in your Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 16. Here's Pastor Steve to explain. One of the most famous quotes to come out of the annals of church history is the now well-known statement by the early church leader Tertullian who said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church, meaning that generally speaking, The more Christians are persecuted and killed, the more the church spreads and grows. Now, that may sound like a strange phenomena, but history, church history in particular, bears this out that when God's people suffer at the hands of their enemies, rather than destroying the church, just the opposite happens. The church actually flourishes and and even thrives. That was true from the very first day of the church when The death of the first martyr, Stephen, was followed by a great persecution, we're told, in the book of Acts, persecuted in Jerusalem. But what happened as a result of that is believers went everywhere in the Roman Empire proclaiming the gospel. And so the church did flourish. And even today we hear reports about many coming to faith in Christ and forming underground house churches in persecuted areas like China and then Muslim and Buddhist and Hindu countries. So instead of silencing the gospel and stamping out the church, persecution has only resulted in the spread of the gospel and the growth of the church. Now that really shouldn't surprise us. That shouldn't 
be something new that we look at and say, I never realized that because way back in Matthew 16, Jesus indicated that his church would never be silenced and never be destroyed. And I'd like you to turn there, Matthew chapter 16. We have been spending our time in this passage of scripture. And so you understand the background. We have already seen many truths related to Matthew 16, verse 18. But here's what the text says. Jesus said, I say also to you, speaking to Peter, you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Now that's what we're going to focus on, that expression, the gates of Hades will not overpower the church. But how did we come to this point? Well, in context, we go back to verse 15. Jesus asked his disciples this question, who do you say that I am? I know what others are saying about me. Some believe I'm one of the prophets. Some believe this, some believe that. Who do you say that I am? And Peter's the only one of all the apostles to speak up. He says in verse 16, he gives this great confession of faith. He said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And then from that point on, the Lord proceeded to reveal that in the future, he was going to create something brand new. Something brand new in the sense of a new community of people who would all believe the same basic truth that Peter had just confessed. The truth is they were going to believe that Jesus was the true Messiah and indeed the Son of God. The Lord called this new community of believers the church, distinct from Israel, the church. Then in verses 18 and 19, the Lord proceeded to tell his disciples what this church that he was planning to build would be like. And that's what we've been looking at for the last, actually, two months. We have been examining the words of our Lord and have uh, been able to isolate several key truths, important features about the very nature of the church that Christ builds. And what we've seen so far is that Jesus said, number one, the church would be built upon the solid foundation of the word of God. When he said in verse 18, you are Peter and upon this rock I'll build my church, he meant this, that people who come to him for salvation and thus form the church, remember the church is not a religious entity, it's people, those who come to him for salvation come only in response to the truths of his word. Specifically, the truths concerning his death, burial, and resurrection. These are the gospel truths. They're all centered on him. They form the foundation of the church. Why? Because nobody comes to faith in Christ without believing about his death, burial, and resurrection. They trust him that he died for their sins and that he was buried and that he rose again to prove to us that God accepted his death on behalf of his people. That's the way of faith. That is the way of salvation. The Lord specifically then identified Peter as the first one that he would use to proclaim these truths about him. But for over 2,000 years, the Lord has continued to build his church as all believers throughout the world proclaim the same good news of salvation that Peter began proclaiming on the day of Pentecost. So that's the first truth that Jesus taught about the church. The church is built upon the solid foundation of the word of God, specifically the gospel of Jesus Christ. The second truth that Jesus gave about the church is that his church is under his sovereign headship. 
the church is under his sovereign headship. He went on in verse 18 to say, I will build my church. Having said that his church is built upon the firm foundation of the word of God, Jesus now indicates how lost and rebellious sinners come to believe the word of God about him. He tells us that he's responsible for building his church. Now we know from the rest of the New Testament that he does this by sovereignly working in the hearts of his elect to bring them to himself. He doesn't explain that here. But we know from the rest of Scripture, as we correlate Scripture, that this is what he was talking about. You see, in stating, I will build my church, he means that he is the one responsible for bringing about the conversion of his people. As I said, although the Lord didn't elaborate it here in Matthew 16, we do know from the rest of the scriptures that salvation only comes by God electing some to salvation and then supernaturally drawing them to Christ as he grants them faith and repentance in believing the gospel. You see, if the Lord didn't do this, if he didn't elect us and he didn't open our hearts to the gospel and he didn't regenerate us and he didn't grant us faith and repentance, then folks, nobody would ever come. Nobody would ever come to faith in him because the sin nature that we were all born with makes us rebels to divine authority and naturally antagonistic to the gospel message. Therefore, Jesus builds his church as he sovereignly goes about saving his elect people one by one. But not only is he the builder and architect of the church, we're also told that he's the Lord of the church. Where are we told he's the Lord of the church? Well, he said, I will build my church. It belongs to him. We're not our own, Scripture says. Having saved us and brought us into his church family, now the Lord reigns and rules over us as our head, as our Lord. He elected us to salvation in eternity past. He's brought us to himself at a certain point in time. And now he presently rules over us from heaven. But how? He does it through his written word. His word is the final authority in our lives. And in light of Christ's present rule over us through his word, we have examined two related issues. Number one, we've seen that the role of local church elders or pastors, they have a a place in this. God raises up in every local church pastors or elders who are equipped to explain and teach the word of God to his people. Now, it doesn't mean that we don't study the word on our own, but he equips elders and pastors to take us usually a little deeper into the word of God. He rules through his word, and he's commanded all of his people to be a part of a local church where the word of God is taught. The second issue relating to Christ's headship of the church is that he graciously provides for all of our ministry needs and physical needs, but the need to carry out his work on earth through the church. And how does he do this? By moving in the hearts of his people to be generous and liberal in their giving to his church on earth. Now, having said that, as we continue our study today of Matthew 16 and the nature of the church, we come to another key truth that Jesus revealed about the church. And this key truth is this. The church that Christ is building is indestructible and will never perish. Notice once again, verse 18. Now, we have not looked at this. We're going to, we're going to focus on this phrase, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I would encourage you to think. This is a thinking type verse. 
So follow with me. Jesus said, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Now, having already said that he will build and rule over his church, with these words, our Lord now promises that the church that he builds will continue to last because it will never be overcome, he tells us, by the gates of Hades. Now, as we consider these words, the first and really the most pressing issue that we need to address is what exactly did Jesus mean by the words, the expression, the phrase, the gates of Hades. And then once we understand that, we need to see in what way the gates of Hades tries to overpower Christ's church but fails. And after coming to an understanding of the full meaning of our Lord's words, then we need to see some important implications and applications that emerge from this important truth that he was teaching. So first of all, let's consider what Jesus meant by the words gates of Hades. You might want to take some notes on this. There are a number of different interpretations that have been suggested by Bible teachers, competent Bible teachers, on what this phrase means. The most common being that they say the gates of Hades is a reference to Satan, and his demons storming and attacking the church by persecution, but failing to destroy her. Now, I think that is the most common view of these words. And according to this view then, Jesus was saying that although the very forces of hell itself, led by Satan, will come against the church, they will not succeed in conquering her. Why? Because she's invincible and she will continue to exist. Now, I don't think... Anyone here, anyone familiar with the word of God would disagree that Satan is behind all of the persecution directed against the Lord's people throughout church history. You read the word, you understand that. You read church history, you understand that. Scripture depicts the devil as our adversary who seeks to destroy us like a roaring lion seeks to devour its prey. We're told that in 1 Peter chapter 5, Verse 8, the devil, your adversary, walks about like a roaring lion seeking to devour its prey. We also know from 1 Thessalonians 2.18 that the Apostle Paul told the church at Thessalonica that on more than one occasion, he wanted to come to them. He wanted to minister to them. He wanted to benefit them. But he said, Satan hindered us. That's 1 Thessalonians 2.18. So there is a sense in which we we understand even from that, that Satan, and we don't know the details, but he hindered Paul from trying to help that church. So it is certainly a biblical truth that Satan targets the church with persecution and hostility and opposition. However, the question for us to determine is, is that the biblical truth that's taught here in Matthew 16? Not whether that's a biblical truth, but Is that what Jesus meant by saying the gates of Hades will not prevail against the church? I want to suggest to you that is not what he meant in this passage. And the reason I say that is because of the way the Lord used the word gates. Gates. You see, if Jesus was using the expression the gates of Hades as a reference to Satan's attacks on the church then he was using the word gates in a very strange, and I might add, unnatural way. That would mean, if that's the case, that he was depicting gates as an instrument of warfare, as an offensive weapon used in warfare, and that is a concept totally foreign to the function 
of gates. No one thinks of gates as something used to attack anything. So why would Jesus use the imagery here of gates to speak of Satan attacking the church? He wouldn't. Nor, I might add, would the disciples have understood gates as an offensive weapon either. It's just unnatural. It's foreign. It's a concept that is not used of gates. You see, the basic function of gates, especially in Christ's day, was to keep people behind it, either to protect them, just like doors would protect a city, but gates of a city would protect you while an enemy attacked your city. You'd be behind the gates, protected. Or another function of gates was to confine someone and lock them up to keep them from escaping, such as escaping from a prison. And I suggest to you this morning that it is this prison imagery that appears to be the way the Lord is using the word gates here in Matthew 16. And that makes perfect sense because notice that Jesus didn't simply speak of gates in general. He called these particular gates the gates of Hades. In other words, these gates are intended to keep people from escaping Hades. I think that's exactly his thought. So we understand that gates, rather than being an offensive weapon used by Satan to attack the church, is really a reference to God's people being confined in an attempt to keep them from escaping from Hades. So the next thing then we need to determine is what does the word Hades mean? Well, contrary to what some people think, the biblical concept of Hades, and it is It should be translated Hades, not hell. It is a different word for hell. It is the word Hades here. The biblical concept of Hades is not precisely the same thing as hell. The Bible refers to hell, usually the Greek word Gehenna, which was a valley, still is a valley in Israel that in Christ's day was used as a garbage dump where fires perpetually burned. That is a reference to hell as the final destination where the unsaved, non-Christians go after death to receive eternal punishment for their sins. That's not the word that's used here, though. It's not Gehenna. It's not hell. Now, sometimes the New Testament does use the words Hades and hell interchangeably to speak of the place of punishment. Sometimes. However... Hades is often used simply, and this is how I believe Jesus is using it, simply to speak of the place of the dead without any regard for what takes place after death. The context determines how the writer is using it. That's why you read about the distinction between Hades and hell in, for example, Revelation 20. Let me read this to you. In Revelation 20, we read of what will take place at the, what's called the great white throne judgment at the end of the age. Revelation 20, starting in verse 13, we read this. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them according to their deeds. Then death and Hades, note this, were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire would be hell. But all I want you to see is that Hades and Hell are distinct in that passage. Now follow me. Hades is the Greek New Testament equivalent of the Hebrew word sheol. 
You often see in the Old Testament, you go through it, you'll see the word Sheol, and it's used to speak simply of the place of the dead. Here's the key. In time, words change as time moves on. In time, the word Sheol came to be regarded by the Jewish people as simply synonymous with death. That's an important thing to understand because that's the way it appears that Jesus is using the word Hades here. I said before more the place of the dead. Let me correct that. It's simply he's using it as death itself, synonymous with death. Therefore, when you put the word gates together with the word Hades, the imagery that Jesus portrayed is that of gates opening up and then confining someone to death, not allowing them to escape. In other words, the gates of Hades speaks of the power of death that prevents anyone from escaping. It is powerful, like gates that will keep you confined. That's the way death is. And that, by the way, is the most natural way that the Lord's Jewish disciples would have understood this expression. Because the words gates of death and similar expressions are used throughout the Old Testament to speak of death. For example, in Psalm 9.13, we read, Be gracious to me, O Lord. See my affliction from those who hate me. You will lift me up from the gates of death. The psalmist was simply saying, People hate me, they want to kill me, but I know that you will lift me up from the gates of death. You'll lift me from the power of death. That's how the disciples would have understood this. They're Jewish, this is their background. Jesus didn't say, I'm using gates in a different way. Gates of Hades, they would have understood it to speak of the power of death. We read also in Isaiah 38 verse 10, speaking of King Hezekiah, from the journals of King Hezekiah, we read this, King Hezekiah said, in the middle of my life, I am to enter the gates of Sheol. I am to be deprived of the rest of my years. Hezekiah was moaning the fact that in midlife, God was going to take his life. He's using the expression, the gates of Sheol, to speak of the power of death, death itself. Remember, Sheol and Hades, same expression, same words, different language. One's Hebrew, one's Greek. And so the expression, the gates of Hades, simply speaks of death in the sense of death locking its gates to keep anyone from escaping. But that's not all. Notice exactly what Jesus said about these gates with reference to his church. Look at the verse again. He said, the gates of Hades will not overpower the church. They won't do it. You see, Jesus was teaching that the gates of Hades, those strong and powerful, are not strong enough to keep the church from escaping the clutches of death. In other words, the Lord was promising that his church will never ultimately die or be destroyed. He was saying that it is indestructible, it is invincible because it will never be overpowered by death. I think that's exactly what he was talking about. That is the essential meaning of of this expression used by Jesus in speaking about the church. Death, he says, meaning the gates of Hades, will not prevail. Death will not prevail against my church. Amen to that. The promise reminds me of the great promise at the end of Romans chapter 8, which says that there is absolutely nothing that can separate us from the love of God. Thanks for tuning in. You've been listening to Verse by Verse with Pastor Teacher Steve Kreloff of Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. 
If you're in or near Clearwater some Sunday, we hope you'll stop in and worship with us. Lakeside is at 1893 Sunset Point Road. Find out more at www.lakesidechapel.com or call 727-239-0306. Verse by Verse is a ministry of Lakeside Chapel, but without gifts from listeners like you who give over and above their regular church giving, we would not be able to pay for the production and airing of these daily broadcasts. So if you are helping to fund Verse by Verse, we thank you and we praise God for you. If perhaps the Lord is speaking to you about helping finance Verse by Verse, we have a page on our website that will help you get started. Go to versebyverseradio.org and click the giving link. That's versebyverseradio.org. And if you missed any of the lessons in this series on the nature of the church, you can get caught up at our website by going to the Message Archive tab. This is Jerry Peterson. Isn't it encouraging to know that the church, meaning the body of Christ, will never be destroyed? The body of Christ, as Pastor Steve pointed out in a previous class, consists of those who have trusted Him for the salvation of their souls. Our physical bodies will, of course, wind down and die. But He will preserve our souls and...